Welcome to Mission Daily. Today, Stephanie sits down with Amr Awadala, co-founder and chief technology officer of Cloudera, which provides a platform for managing data, data engineering, machine learning, and much more for cloud-based enterprises. Lovingly called the geek from Egypt, Amr migrated from Egypt with a love for computer engineering and a dream of starting his own company. Amr founded VivaSmart, which later sold to Yahoo, before leaving Yahoo to start his current company, Cloudera, in 2009, which is now valued at $2.5 billion. On this episode of Mission Daily, Amr shares his journey from Egypt to the United States, the shift in influence of user-generated data, and how he looks to other Fortune 500 companies as his model for success. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. This is Stephanie Postles, and today I'm joined by Amr Awadala, founder and global CTO at Cloudera. Amr, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for coming down the street to hang out with us in our studio. Of course, my pleasure. So I'd love to kind of jump into where you're at today and how you got here. So you co-founded Cloudera. Mm -hmm. What did that process look like? So uh, we started in uh, 2008. October 2008 actually was when we got our first round of funding. It's October now. In fact, October 14, 2008, which literally is today. Yeah, the anniversary. (laughs) Happy anniversary. So we are 11 years old if you count from the day of the first wire transfer. But uh, the company itself uh, kind of was was conceived a few months before that. Like mm-hmm. we were thinking we, we were going to do this. The story is I was at Yahoo before uh, co-founding Cloudera. And at Yahoo, I was doing business intelligence and data analytics for a number of the Yahoo key properties like Yahoo Search, Yahoo Mail, Yahoo yeah. Finance. And uh, as part of that, uh, I ran one of the largest uh, data warehouses in the world. And uh, it it had a number of problems. It wasn't scaling. It was uh, not cost effective. It was uh, very rigid. So it didn't have the agility to evolve it as fast as you would like. It didn't really answer the, the deeper questions that we wanted to get to. And it was clear that something new is required. So I experienced the problem uh, firsthand. And I was fortunate while I was at Yahoo, and uh, this was around the 2005-2006 timeframe, uh, a technology was being born that was called Hadoop. And Hadoop was not being born for uh, data science and uh, business intelligence. Hadoop was being born for Yahoo Search. So Yahoo can index the web and create a web index uh, so people can use Yahoo Search. Uh, However, I bumped into some folks from that team and they um, said, hey, the problems you describe sound exactly like what we're building this thing for. So why don't you try it out? And I tried it out on my team and... uh, Lo and behold, it just worked perfectly. Mm-hmm. Like the, the speed was 10 times more, the agility flexibility was 10 times more, and the complexity and the type of questions we can ask was also 10 times more. So as, long, as, as soon as I saw the 10, 10, 10 sign, it was clear, yeah. hey, this is a good thing to leave Yahoo and start a company around. And uh, I joined first a VC firm called Excel Partners and uh, was wor- working there as an entrepreneur in residence. And then while working there, I got to meet my co-founders. Oh, and cool. uh, yeah, we kicked off Cloudera in October 14, yep. 2008. Very cool. So what did it look like being a EIR at Excel Partners? Did that help your journey here? I mean, of course, finding your co-founders is great, but what, what was that like? Yeah, it was helpful in many levels, actually. So first... I wasn't sure that this is the only idea I should be working on. It was a great idea, um, clearly a problem I had, but is this problem only I had or this problem that many other people have? So by being at Excel, I was able to reach out to a couple of uh, banks, a couple of telecommunication companies, uh, medical institutions, 
through the Excel network to uh, do interviews with them, not to check whether this is a good solution, but to check whether you have the problem at the first place. Mm -hmm. And it was clear that that problem actually existed in more than one place. Maybe Yahoo was a few years ahead, but it was clear that they were coming to the same destination and they would need something like that. So it was very helpful on that front to help validate that this problem is more than just my problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I got to meet my co-founders, uh, Jeff Hammerbacker from Facebook, who was also an EIR at Excel. So I got to meet him over there. Uh, he is uh, famous for helping coin the term data scientist. Uh, okay, so, so pretty legit. <laughs> <laughs> very legit. And then uh, first initially it was me and him, we were gonna start the company, but then uh, we heard about these two other guys, thanks to Excel, that were thinking about doing the same thing. And we were the only ones in the world thinking about doing the same thing. So these two other guys were Mike Olson, uh, who previously sold his company to Sleepy Cat to Oracle. So Mm -hmm. he came from Oracle. And Christophe Bichelia, who came from Google and helped them run their MapReduce education team. So very relevant skills to what Mm -hmm. we were trying to do. And uh, they were thinking about doing the same thing. We were thinking about doing the same thing. And our uh, investors being the optimizers that they are, (laughs) said, hey, maybe you guys should join forces and just do one thing, uh, as opposed to competing with each other uh, and fragmenting the market so early. So yeah, we, that's exactly what we did. We kind of dated for a few months. We would go out, uh, have coffee, watch a movie, have dinner. We would also have meetings and brainstorms and intentionally try to um, get into arguments to mm-hmm. see if we can resolve these arguments in a friendly way. Uh, so okay, essentially we dated, that's yeah. what we did. And then at the end of that dating period, which was like about four weeks, we decided, sure, let's do this together. And uh, we worked on uh, the first uh, pitch and we gave that pitch to Excel and they, they liked it and yeah, the rest is history. That's awesome. And you guys are all still together? Uh, unfortunately, no. So they okay. all left. I'm the only one remaining in oh, the no? company still. Yeah, they all left. We're, we're 11 years old. So yeah. the company is has been around for a long time now. Yeah. Back then, there was only four people. Now we have more than 2,600 people wow. uh, working in the company. Uh, we did have a big merger. I can talk about le- that later on. And uh, we operate in about 80 countries across the world. Okay, cool. So do you have any stories or advice on finding a co-founder or best practices or things like that that you learn? Because it always scares me when I see, you know, either on AngelList or places where it's like, I'm looking for a co-founder. I'm like, oh gosh, if that's how you're going to go about it, that sounds terrifying because you are essentially kind of married to them for a long time. And do you have any advice on that process or what it was like for you? Yeah. At first I would say it applies to everybody on the founding team, not just, not just your co-founders, like everybody you have in the first 10 or 20, you have to be super careful with mm-hmm. because their impact is huge, yeah. right? So when you're 10 or 20 people, first, if one out of 10 is not working, then that's 10% hit on productivity. Mm-hmm. But it's actually even bigger because now the other nine will look and say, how come this guy's not putting their weight or this guy is not putting her weight? And then they will start working less or they will be agonizing of it. So the, yeah. the, in the first 10 or 20, you want to be super careful with whoever you attract. And then you're absolutely right that uh, the, the founder relationship itself is a bit more like a marriage relationship, especially in the first few years, you'll be spending a lot of time with them. And Mm -hmm. and that's why I stressed we dated because I wanted to allude to that. You you need to know how you're going to have arguments and still be able to resolve them in a friendly way. The ideal way to guarantee that you'll be able to do that is if you have worked with each other before. So the, 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 the bias should always be towards somebody I worked with before. I know them, they know me. Uh, we had many arguments in the past and we were able to resolve them in a good way. Uh, that was not the case for us at Cloudera, unfortunately. So one of our founders, without mentioning which one, uh, didn't get along very well with the others and we had to make a change mm-hmm. uh, in the first couple of years. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if we had worked with him before, then we would not have had to make that. And yeah. my 
opinion. So one of the key lessons I'm giving myself for my next company when I do do another one is I'm only going to pick co-founders I worked with before because I just want to yeah. minimize the headache that might come from that. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely agree. I always think about before this, I worked at Google and I always think about the people that I would be working with. And I'm like, oh, you'd be a pleasure to like, you know, be around yes. and solve problems with. And then the other type of people where I'm like, I thought you were nice, but after a couple of meetings in, I realized this would never work. Exactly. And I can barely even work on this project with you because of, you know, X, Y, or Z. Exactly. So. And interview, same thing with recruiting and interviews. Yeah. Like interviews by definition is a flawed process. Yeah. Meaning you're only spending a couple of hours, uh, maybe five hours if there's more than one interviewer, and you're making a judgment call based on that. And yeah. yes, you're going to try your best, but you're going to make mistakes. So that's why the, the extension I give to my advice is, in the early years, when you're 10, 20, even up to 100, uh, be very careful with the, with the hiring yep. and be very fast with the firing. So they, yes. go, they go hand in hand because you will hire somebody and within the first month, you'll discover, oh my God, this is completely opposite to yep. what we felt during the interview. And when you're still young, you don't have time. You, you don't have time to go and mentor them and yeah. uh, coach them uh, to be the same culture. Maybe they're amazing, just not the right culture or the or vice versa. There's just no time. In later years, now Cloudera, we're 2,600 people. Of course, we yeah, we don't fire people right away. We yeah. give them the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. But in the early years, there's just no time. And I think that's the secret to why the Silicon Valley is special, by yeah. the way, yeah, no. compared to some other countries. That's very, very different. I mean, definitely country basis. I think yeah. when we were talk, looking at maybe employees in Japan, not that we are going to hire employees there. It's like, you actually kind of can't fire very hard, yes. employees and in Japan. Thing in Europe, like sometimes yeah. like Germany or France, mm -hmm. very hard. And uh, while that's okay when you're a big company, that's a death call for a oh, startup. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, agree. Yeah. So how would you explain Cloudera to someone who maybe doesn't actually know what it is? <laughs> and that's a very good question. So uh, our job, uh, if I, first our official marketing <laughs> kind of description, which I have to give, otherwise Go our marketing it. team might be upset at me, is uh, we believe data will make the impossible possible. So we believe that some of the hardest problems in the world by collecting and leverage data in the right way, will be able to solve these problems. Now, let me peel the onion a, a little bit. I like to describe it as the automation of decisions. This is what we're trying to do. So the previous wave of, uh, of information technology was about the automation of processes. So taking a process, like sending a message and doing it, instead of sending a letter, I mean, and instead of doing it by handwriting, doing it by email or by messenger or WhatsApp. That's the previous wave. The next wave uh, is about how can we take a decision that's being take within, within, taken within an organization collect data around how that decision is being taken and automate that. So let me give you a couple of very specific examples. Uh, my favorite examples always come from the health space because you're not just uh, uh, helping automate decisions, you're helping save lives too. Yeah. So this one is about one of our customers, I cannot mention them by name, but they are a hospital chain. And uh, they discovered that in neonatal intensive care units, uh, for pre-born babies, when babies are born prematurely, not all the nurses, by the just that's how it is in almost every discipline. Not all the nurses are good. Only yeah. only 10% are good. Like only 10% are really good at reading the baby, reading the signals and figuring out when they are stressed. The remaining 90%, they're average. They're okay, but they're average. And uh, that can be a problem because this means not everybody's getting the best care. However, if you look at the decisions they're making, the decisions they're making are really simple. They're reading the input signals and trying to interpret them in a way that deduces whether the baby is hungry or cold or stressed mm -hmm. uh, or just needs to be held. So what they have done is they collected lots and lots of data from the good, from the 10% amazing nurses, 
and how they come up with their decisions. And using machine learning, they were able to come up with a system now that has a screen on top of the baby's uh, crib, the mm -hmm. unit that they're in, and on the screen, it will say what the expert nurse would say. It would say, I'm hungry right now, or it would mm -hmm. say, uh, I am cold, I need to be uh, warmed up, or I just need to be held, wow. or no, my heart is stressed out, run and get the doctor right now. So it will tell them what they need to do. And that is what we mean when we say the automation of decisions. So we're able to automate the decisions of the best of us to make the average become the best. That's and, crazy. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> what you. kind of results, like how do you measure that afterwards, especially with babies? I mean, I have a 19 month year old and I feel like I still can't even read him sometimes. <laughs> so what do you do afterwards when you implement a system like that? And you know, you, now you have the data telling everyone what to do. Like how do you show success to, you know, the hospital or whoever invested in that to begin with. Yes. So, so the, here's the beauty of all of these machine learning and AI systems is when we're teaching them, we have the input data set of the history, the history of how the nurse has been doing it. And what we do is we take that history and we split it into two buckets, the bucket we're going to use to train the algorithm, and then the bucket we're going to use to rank the algorithm. So we have lots of history that we can rank. How good is that new uh, algorithm that learned from us able to handle some cases that they have never seen before from the past. And and then we can measure the accuracy of how close they're getting to the experts. So that's how we usually measure these systems. And that's happening all around us. So I, I sometimes have conversations with people and I mention the word AI and they, um, that always triggers very interesting conversations where they mention Skynet and the Terminator and all these yes. kind of things. And I'm like, don't be scared. But they say, no, we're very scared of AI. And then I tell them, are you using Google Maps? And they say, yes, we're using Google Maps. And tell them, do you go right when Google Maps tells you to go right? They say, yes. I tell them, do you go left when it says go left? They say, yes. I say, that's AI. You're listening to it obediently, 100%, and then it gets you to where you need to go. And, and that's exactly what Google Maps, is, Maps has done. It learned from the experts among us, and Google Ways as well, a, a bit yeah. more than Maps, learned from the experts from us how to make a shortcut and how to take a left turn and a right turn, and then made the average navigator become an expert navigator. And yes, that replaced the jobs of navigators. So now we really need to go get one of these navigators to help us. Uh, but now it enabled new waves like Uber and Lyft that would not have been possible without something like that. So that's kind of the balance. Yeah. Uh, it's a very long way of saying that's what Cloudera does. That's cool. And how, has you, how have you seen Cloudera shift from, you know, now we have more of a crowdsource type of model where you can get a lot more data from everyone around where maybe 11 years ago, that wasn't really the case. Oh, absolutely. So how have you kind of seen a shift in that like user generated data yeah. providing insights versus maybe companies providing that on their own? You need both. You absolutely need both. I always like to remind uh, folks that the machine learning and AI algorithms that we're using, many of them actually were discovered in the 1970s. Uh, that's what, 60 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the reason why we couldn't really use them 60 years ago was twofold. One, they were actually very expensive to run. They need like these massive supercomputers. And now uh, we have the Viton conquer techniques that allow us to run it on normal computers at scale. And then number two, we didn't have enough data. So really the explosion in AI and machine learning that happened over the last uh, uh, 15 years is happening because we now have first all of these smart devices in our hands, meaning the, the, our cell phones, but we also, the extension of cell phones is the sensors, is now we have all of these very cheap sensors that can measure everything around us. And that's what's enabling us to do that. So another example that speaks to the same is uh, Lufthansa technique. So Lufthansa technique, they are the arm of Lufthansa that uh, maintains airplanes. 
So predicts whether a, do a door is going to fail or an engine or a brake or, or, or. And they do that as a service for many companies, not just for Lufthansa, they do it for many other airlines. They had the same issue is they couldn't scale. They had, didn't have enough engineers to go and inspect every single airplane and uh, predict whether something is going to fail or not. And they also had the issue of only 10% of their engineers were really good and the yeah. remaining 90% were average. So they would miss things every now and then. So they did the exact same thing. They learned from the 10% how they come up with their predictions. And now there is an algorithm that just does it mm -hmm. and does that at scale continuously 24 by 7. So that would not have been possible if it wasn't for the sensors that were able yeah. to collect all of that input data for us that, that now we can correlate, correlate with machine learning algorithms to do these kind of things. Yeah. So yes, you're absolutely right. That's awesome. So what kind of industries do you see being impacted over the next decade who maybe you know aren't implementing data analytics and insights and sensors and things like that? Where do you sh see that shift changing over the next decade or so? Yeah, so I'm very biased, yeah. <laughs> being one of the co-founders of Cloudera. You should be. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think every single industry is going to imp be impacted by this. So in my uh, public talks, I frequently equate this motion that's happening right now to the industrial revolution, right? So the industrial revolution was how can we automate what we do with our hands? So there are, we make a piece of cloth with our hands, and now a machine does it. And... The industries, the organizations that were able to take advantage of that, the countries that were able to take advantage of that were the, were the ones that thrived and almost everybody else failed, except for niche markets like a, a special carpet from Turkey where they make these amazing... Uh, yeah, like <laughs> you still want that. Or <laughs> they still want that, but yeah. by hand. But, but other than that, everybody that was still trying to compete by hand died. Uh, I mean, their business uh, ceased to exist. So the same thing will happen here. Is we having this uh, new technology helping us make stuff, but instead of making stuff that our hands were making, it's our brains were making meaning decisions. And the organizations that were able to leverage that will be the ones that were survive. So we were surprised at Cloudera that we had uh, customers show up that were in the agriculture industry. We never thought that we'll have farmers using our technology, but farmers are using this technology because what's happening now is they have sensors in the field that can measure the temperature at a micro scale and uh, they can measure the conditions, the humidity, can measure if there's any uh, insects uh, spreading around. And that can be used in real time to optimize the type of medicine that's being applied at, an, at a micro scale, which can produce much better uh, produce. So that is just one example. This, is, this will happen across every single industry. Very cool. And do you kind of guide your customers on when to go with data versus maybe when to use like a gut feeling or like how to choose the right metrics to look at and things like that? Because I know at least from working at Google, we had tons of data, but sometimes it would actually send the engineers in the wrong direction because they weren't thinking at a higher level. So is there a way that you kind of guide your clients on like, we're giving you, you know, a lot of information and insights, you know, at your fingertips, but you still kind of need to work through it and think through how to do it? Or how do you guys approach that? Yeah. So uh, as I stressed in uh, the couple of examples I gave so far, these algorithms are learning from us. So yes, our hunch, our expertise, the expert nurse, the expert lawyer, the expert engineer uh, that is predicting the failure of a piece of equipment, they are the input. So our hunch and our gut is the input. And we, if you don't have enough inputs, we won't be able to create this automation. And uh, in many cases, the algorithm, if, they if it encounters a new um, exceptional condition that has never seen before, it will still require a human expert to come in and make a judgment call, and then it will be able to learn that going, going forward. So uh, we still need both, yeah. uh, meaning I, I am a big believer in data, and I say data can help us uh, resolve many, many arguments, but sometimes when we don't have enough uh, data or we don't have enough decisions based on historical data, we still need to rely on our hunch.
So it's the, the right approach is the balance of both. And it, Google Maps, again, if I go yeah. back to that, yeah, every now and then, if I know I have a hunch and I know, no, this shortcut is the better one. I've been using it many times. I know yeah. for sure it's better. You still override what the algorithm is telling you. And that's okay. Yep. Yeah, completely agree. So when you all were starting Cloudera, how did you acquire your first customer and convince them to go with you guys, try you out, buy you? So <laughs> it's a very good question. Uh, it's very hard in enterprise software to do that. Uh, we were fortunate first that we were our own first customers, right? So I, I was the first customer of Hadoop uh, at Yahoo. Same thing, Jeff Becker, he was kind of one of the very first customers at Facebook to use that technology because it was open source. So we were lucky that the underlying framework that became the seed of what we wanted to do was an open source uh, framework. And the open source, one of the key benefits it brings you is that free distribution aspect. Is many organizations uh, started adopting it and they would then come to us and say, can you please ha come help us running it in production? Uh, so that's stable, it's reliable, it's secure. And that's came, kind of where we came in. So our our first customers came to us mm -hmm. at the beginning. Uh, the, these were the in the kind of the Gorilla marketing kind of uh, uh, inside the Tornado uh, classification. These were the early adopters. But once you cross the early adopters, you need to go to them because there's many customers out there that don't know yet that automation of decisions is such an important thing. And you have to evangelize to them and teach them so they can start adopting this. So for us, it was interesting. Our first customers were easy. Our next wave of customers were hard mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the other way around. Okay. And yeah. so how did you go about that next wave of customers then? It's, is that just because it was an new market who maybe hadn't been working with Hadoop and you actually had to even explain like exactly from the start. So did you have to kind of train your customers on like why they even needed it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So lots of evangelism and lots of education and training, especially to the industries that are not data industries by default, right? So there's many industries that are data industries like banking or telecommunications. They completely understand data, but there are some other industries like manufacturing or agriculture or health where data is not their core. And that's where you need to do that education. Very cool. When I think about if you were to start your business today and you know, you're building it off of an open source thing, how did you do something that competitors couldn't do? Because I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I, I think I remember back in the day, a lot of people were trying to use Hadoop and, you know, sell tools around it. Yeah. I remember going to like a Tableau conference back in the day and they were like heavily talking about it and like everyone was. So how did you all distance yourself while using something that's open source and really anyone could have used? Like, how did you, you know, become the market leader? Open source models and how to make them work. It's a very complex topic. It deserves yeah. its own podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, in a nutshell, uh, at Cloudera, at, uh, Cloudera actually merged with our second largest competitor. And, our, and almost everybody else trying to do this is out of, does not exist anymore. Yeah. So we're the only kind of, we are the kings remaining now, which is great. We had very different approaches though. So Cloudera's approach historically has been we will add some components which are proprietary in nature. So even though our core is open, so we call that open core, we still have some things to do with security and management and uh, reliability and stability, which, which are around the core, which are still proprietary. A comparator of our Hortonworks, which we merged with, their approach, no, we're going to do everything uh, open source. Both approaches worked. So they were the, very close to us. When we merged, we were very close in size. Uh, I, I would say uh, the advice of what to do, regardless of whether you're open source or not, is you you build things that you your customers need. You're building features that your customers need right here, right now. You educate them on what can be done, the art of the possible. And then you, uh, you execute way better than your competitors. Yes. That's it. 
That's awesome. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Easy as that. All right, everyone. Just, just it's easier said than done. I mean, it's, of course, it's very hard, but but that's kind of the, the, the summary of it. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Build what the customers want in a differentiated way and execute very well. Got it. Yeah. So to back it up a long time ago, you were born in Egypt, right? Yes. How long were you there for? What was the experience like in Egypt versus coming to the US? What was that transition like? Uh, night and day for me. Yeah. Was, was... Tell me a bit about it. I want to hear. I haven't been to Egypt. so. <laughs> you, first, you should visit Egypt because yeah. it's a great uh, touristic place uh, to visit. So much history uh, to see over there. But uh, when I was in Egypt, uh, my dad is a professor. So my dad is a professor of accounting at Cairo University. And uh, as I was growing up, he always told me, Amr, when you grow up, you're going to be a professor like me. So all of my uh, childhood and even teenage years, I was working towards, I am going to be a professor and teach. I had no uh, aspirations to be an entrepreneur or start companies or anything like that. Uh, In fact, I had no aspirations to work for the industry. I I thought I'd always work for academia. And I did well in school in Egypt. I finished in Cairo University, was top of my class. And then I came here, I was luckily accepted into Stanford University, and I came here to do my PhD. And uh, I frequently say that on my first trip from the airport to Stanford, that's when everything started to change. Because on that trip, I saw the companies I was hearing about. I saw Oracle, I saw Intel, I saw HP. So I saw all of these companies that I've been hearing about. I saw them, uh, like, there they are. They're not like these magical creatures in the sky. They actually exist. And then I even saw the garage in which HP was founded. So that was the beginning of me. Ah, that, so it sounds like normal people make these companies, not like gods or something. And then Stanford itself is a very entrepreneurial school. So uh, first, they invite a lot of speakers from the industry fa- uh, founders to come in and talk about their companies. So that further reaffirmed that that message of, hey, the founders are just normal people. Uh, and then they give many classes and courses that teach you how to come up with a business plan, how to do a pitch, how to speak to investors. So very quickly, that became more exciting for me. And I started to shift away from, let's uh, become a professor like my dad to instead, let's uh, start a company. In fact, Cloudera is my second company, not my first one. So in my uh, third year of the PhD, I uh, took a leave of absence from Stanford and I started a company called uh, VivaSmart, which was one year old when Yahoo acquired us. So that's how I ended up at Yahoo. Wow. That's pretty cool. What was that Mm -hmm. like being acquired after one year? That seems fast. (laughs) Because uh, again, when I came here, I wasn't I mean, I was uh, I wasn't financially well off. Like yeah. I, was, I was just okay. In fact, I remember for my first uh, for my son who was born shortly after arriving here, we had to get uh, like uh, these coupons to help us to buy him milk because we didn't have enough money money for that. So I wasn't like financially very well off while uh, studying at Stanford. Uh, and then uh, we started uh, Viva Smart, and then when, within a year, with a smaller funding, we only had like half a million or something like that. We got acquired for nine million wow. uh, by by Yahoo, and so that was life changing for me. That's wild. Yeah. That's awesome, though. But I wasn't doing it for the money. Yeah, yeah. That's- and that's uh, another key advice I give people is. Do it because you're solving a problem you care about. You need to be very passionate and careful about that. And uh, that's actually one of the key signals that uh, the VCs and investors look for. If they sense you're doing it for the money, they get dismayed. If they sense you actually know a good problem that you're passionate about and you are one of the few people that have a solution, that's uh, that's a very strong signal they look for. Yeah, yeah. No, I always see like, if you want to do something for the money, probably starting a startup is actually not, you know, financially sound to do. Yeah. And you might always hear about the success stories and that, you know, the media is always going to highlight the people who are getting bought out for millions of dollars and yes. all that. But that's actually normally not the case. That's actually not the case at all. Right. So the statistics say that only two out of 10 yeah. do OK. Like, yeah. And okay. one, one, out, one out of a thousand does amazing. 
Yeah. Uh, like Laudera would be one out of a thousand, meaning, yeah. meaning you IPO, you have a multi-billion dollar valuation, and then only one, one out of a hundred thousand becomes like an Apple or a Google. So, yeah. And it takes many years to get to that level. So the, the chances are you actually are going to fail <laughs> when you're yeah. doing a startup. And and that's one of the key advice I, I tend to give people. You need to be ready for that. You need to be okay with that. And that's why the Silicon Valley is special. If you go back uh, to our conversation from earlier, is the Silicon Valley knows that and it's okay with that. It knows that the chances of failure is high. I'm going to leave my job in a, in a, at a Google and go work for a startup that might fail. And I'm okay with that yep. because uh, that experience is what I'm after more than anything else. Yep. No, I think the mindset here is so different. When Chad and I were in DC before this, it was very much like, why would you ever leave? You know, like exactly. I was working at Fannie Mae of all places. And <laughs> I remember like my parents and like friends being like, you have such a good like semi-government job, Stephanie. Like, why would you ever go to Google? Yes. And I was just like, why wouldn't you? And everyone, you know, in the DC area was very much in that mindset, like get a good, stable government job yeah. and like failure. If you do try and start a company, like you better have it all mapped out and the yeah. finances and everything has to be perfect. Yeah. And it was so eye-opening coming out here. I remember, yeah, Chad and I doing the cross-country trip. And just like you said, driving up and seeing the Facebooks and the Googles and everything that I'd, you know, we had always read about but hadn't seen. Yeah. And just how different the mindset is. It's like, it's okay. And if you want to move, you know, move companies, move to a startup, move back to Google, like you have a lot of flexibility. You don't have to just stay in one career path and you have to stay at a company for five years to look stable. And yeah. like all that just went out the window, which exactly. I think and was failure, awesome. And the other thing also is failing is okay. Yeah. Like like uh, joining a company that fails is, doesn't count against you yeah. unless if you do it in a in the wrong like uh, unless if you did something like illegal then yes yeah. that counts against you yeah. but if you tried your best and it just wasn't the right time no problem I yeah. mean uh, we'll we'll bet on you again that's fine yeah the only problem is if it's illegal or if you keep <laughs> failing in the same way that's also that's called failure that's yeah. different <laughs> yeah. so that's that's not a good thing but outside of that the culture is very accepting of mm -hmm. uh, trying and failing that's just yep. part of the culture it's fine yeah no very cool so was there Anything you did when you were back in Egypt where you're like, I remember doing this as a child that kind of now I look back on it, it kind of led me to this career path or led me to coming to the U.S. and going to Stanford. And like, did you have any odd jobs or anything weird you used to do that? I mean, we yeah, know it was about? definitely my interest in technology from very early years and especially computers and how computers work. So um, and I thank both my mom and dad for encouraging that, like they would uh, get try and get me like things that uh, help me build electronic kits or build like mini computers, uh, like simple computers and uh, and so on. So that really opened up my interest. And they were very patient with me breaking everything we have in the house. Yeah. <laughs> like I would open everything. I would open the TV, I would open the radio and sometimes I put it back and sometimes I don't. So uh, so I think that's kind of the, that curiosity about how things work. Uh, which they absolutely help uh, nurture uh, is kind of what led me on this path. That's very cool. Yeah. So do you have any mentors or role models that you kind of look to or that you meet up with? I know a lot of CEOs we've had in here all talk about how they have their own little CEO networks where on IPO day, they talk about texting each other and encouraging each other and meeting up for coffee and getting best practices do you have anyone like a network like that or role models that you kind of watch and follow closely? Yeah, so I have, uh, there's two mentors, two mentors I kind of uh, relied on over the years, uh, on or off. Uh, one is uh, special because he helped me create Cloudera. So his name is Andrew Barakia, and he's one of the VC partners at Excel Partners. Uh, before joining Excel, he used to be at Yahoo. And he was my manager and, and mentor while at Yahoo. And when he left Yahoo, he joined them. I left like a, a year after. And that's when he said, hey, you could come here and be an EIR. But then throughout my journey at Cloudera, he was, even though he was not the funding VC, it was a different person who was on our board and funded us. Uh, he continued to be a very active mentor for me. Like whenever I had any problem, he would have breakfast with me once a month and let me just like 
talk about anything and give me advice. So he played a very significant role. Uh, the other person who I used more tactically for more strategic kind of advice is uh, Diane Green. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diane Green, yes. the founder, she's a great person, amazing. I know her through Mendel Rosenblum, her husband. So Mendel was my uh, research advisor at uh, Stanford. So I got my PhD with him. And uh, that's how I got to know her. They were both actually investors in Cloudera. So they made some okay money from us. Yes. And uh, yeah, she was always there for me as well. Whenever I would have very special like founder questions I needed to ask uh, or advice on, she she was always there for me. And I just look up to her. Of course, she's amazing in terms of what she was able to accomplish. That's cool. Were there any difficult decisions you had to make during your career or pivotal points that you remember till this day that kind of brought you here or that you had to struggle through to get here? Yeah, the, the difficult decisions always tend to be around people. It's always people, right? So I'm a very kind of passionate guy and I get attached uh, to people. And uh, so like leaving Yahoo was a very difficult decision. And it wasn't because of the salary. It was because of all of these people. First, my group that depended on me. I was a VP managing a large team, but also all my coworkers and so on. So it's always hard to, to do that separation of, oh, these people have been working with them for eight years, 10 years, and now I have to, to move on. Uh, same thing when you're working for a company and uh, like Claudera, I mentioned in the early years, we were a bit faster with the firing. Very hard to, to do that. Very hard because uh, some of these people, you had to convince them, come work for me because of this amazing dream. And now we have to go tell them, I'm sorry, I need to let you go. These tend to be the hardest decisions for me. Like I'd always uh, go up in the room after and tear up a little bit after one of those. Yeah, no, yeah. those are always super tough. We had to do that a couple of times early on in our company and it's something you remember and yep. create different hiring strategies as well afterwards. Exactly. Which I wanted to ask that earlier. What do you all do at Cloudera that helps with that? You know, the interview process or hiring or finding the right fit, especially when you have as many employees as you do. Yeah, I mean, no magic. I mean, it's uh, first you have a good system in place, but uh, you need to do three things and do them well. Uh, you, you need to have a very structured interview process that covers not just the technical skills uh, or the aptitude skills if you're in accounting, but also co- covers your, the culture fits, yep. right? So uh, for example, our culture at Cloudera is a very collaborative culture. Like we really believe in it. We're all in it together. Um, none of us are super smart and we are all super smart <laughs> together, but none of us is like the smartest uh, kind of gift to creation yeah. by, by God and everybody should listen to them. But some people prefer the other type of culture and that's fine. It's just, it's not our culture. So we always look for that in the interview process. And then the third, the third part is, is background checks. Extremely important to yeah. do very good reference checks and background checks. It's standard stuff. Right? Yeah. So, hey, we don't do background checks. Yeah. If you were to build a company today, what company would you build? If I knew what it would be, I would be starting it right now. So, oh, well, uh, yeah. no indications of market or like what you're interested in. No, no you can ask me like, what are some interesting markets evolving yeah, right there you now? Go. And I can give an answer to that. But Let's hear if that there's then. which one would you build right now, then I would be building it. Okay, what are your most exciting markets that you're looking into then? So definitely the market that we are already in, uh, which we are in the... Uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning yeah. market. How can we leverage data to make the impossible possible? I think that's that's going to be with us for the next 20, 30 years. And sure. it's going to be as big as the IT movement and the industrial revolution and so on. I, I'm a big uh, gamer myself. So I, I believe in the extension of games into virtual reality. Uh, I think the market is still early. Uh, we're still seeing the beginnings of it, but it's very promising, the stuff we're seeing coming out right now. Uh, so that's a market I'm very excited about. There's potential beyond just gaming. It's potential also for training, for skills beyond what we can get uh, in just by practicing in the in the physical world. So imagine doctors not having to dissect yeah. offices anymore and yeah. still getting the same level of, uh, if not better, because they can see inside the body uh, 
in virtual reality as they wish. So uh, that's a market I'm very, very excited about as well. So these would be the two that I would be tracking over very the next cool. few years. Yeah. So where do you see Cloudera going then over the next five to 10 years? Very good question. So we're still early in our journey. Like uh, Cloudera is 11 years old. Uh, by uh, by uh, like I look at IBM as one of my kind of aspirations. IBM is what 100 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so we're still early in our life, uh, in our lifetime, and I think we still have uh, a lot of uh, things to accomplish uh, over 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 the next year, uh, many years. And we're very focused on that mission of making the impossible possible with data which means we need to make our product much more easier to consume. So right now, few companies have the necessary engineering skills to leverage a technology like this. And uh, that makes it accessible only to them. While I uh, asserted to you earlier that I think every field and every domain can benefit from this. So we are spending all of our energy in how to make our platform easier to uh, not, not just install and deploy, but to consume to get use cases that can be deployed within it in a matter of weeks instead of in a matter of months. So that's our focus for the next couple of years is ease of use, ease of use. We just had a major release happen uh, two weeks ago. Uh, it's called the Cloudera Data Platform. And uh, the key difference in, in it compared to our previous versions is two things. They're both the same, but the two things. The ease of use of deploying in cloud environments, because cloud now is becoming a key destination for where this is being done. And the ease of use, depending on what you're trying to do. So let me just explain that yeah. a little bit. So we, we have a very powerful platform that can do a lot of things. Machine learning is one of them. It can also do search. It can do what's called data engineering. It can do analytics and SQL, traditional. And we, we didn't have a simple story for how we can do each one of these things. You had to learn the entire platform to do each one of them. We now have these pre-optimized experiences to if you're coming in and you just want to do uh, machine learning, then you have a path that allows you to do that much quicker than, than before. Same thing for the other kind of uh, personas that might be using our platform. So ease of use is something, not just Cloudera, like the entire industry, we need to be very focused on that for this wave of automation to work. We need to bring it down so that any organization can deploy it. Yeah, no, I, I love that goal because it, yeah, it does feel like there's a lot of roles where you shouldn't have to be an engineer, but be able to digest the data and, you know, train your own models and develop your own systems without having to code and, you know, get in too many of the details. Yes. And Nirvana is the point where we make that just a normal flow of us getting our job done. Like the example with the nurses and the screen above, that's just part of their job. They don't yeah. know that there is this big, massive supercomputer yeah. uh, machine yeah. learning thing in the background trying to come up with the answer. They just look at that as part of their job. We, when we use Google Maps Navigate, it's just part of what we're trying to do. So, so that's Nirvana. Nirvana is this, these stuff, these things that are going to help us make decisions quicker and faster. We just become of our part of our routine, and we don't even need to think about it. That's cool. So, to kind of wrap up this conversation, if you had one piece of advice for a founder or someone starting a company or uh, someone who's in the weeds right now feeling like, I don't know if I can keep going on anymore, which I'm sure you've felt a couple of times. Yes. What would you, what advice would you give someone in the struggle right now? Uh, my advice is passion. You have to have passion for your, the problem you're trying to solve. You have to be very passionate that that's the problem I want to focus on. And I really believe in it. And I really believe it can uh, change the world in a better way regardless of what that problem, regardless what it is, right? So, but for you, it needs to be the right thing. That passion 
for the problem is what is going to make you persevere and sustain everything else, right? Because yes, problems will happen. You will have the right founders or the wrong founders. You're going to have funding pulled in at the last day. A big customer canceled their deal on the last day. You're going to have all kinds of problems. One of your key engineers leaving you in the middle of a, of a launch. And, and the thing that's just going to keep you going in the same way that gives you coming in your marriage yeah. <laughs> is just your love for, for, for what you're working on. So, so test yourself a hundred times. How much am I committed to this? Uh, and my belief in this. That, that'd be my advice. Yeah, that is a good spot to wrap it up. Thank you. Well, it's been such a fun conversation. Yeah, hopefully we can have you back for round two because I'm sure you all have a lot in the works. And yeah, hopefully see you next time. Thank you. I hope so too. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.